I think I was planning or maybe even hoping in some ways to find that these, these kind of spur of the moment movements that, that took off and really disrupted the status quo in, in ways that had you know, not previously been imagined, that they were going to be actually more important than they ended up being. Right. And I think, like I said, one thing that I realized is that it wasn't that romantic moment of stepping out, right? It wasn't the moment of taking to the streets that actually made the difference in terms of how that particular political situation transpired or unfolded. It was the kind of larger context, those bigger struggles that that, you know, initial spark was really only a part of. So I think that that's kind of um, what maybe the biggest lesson I learned from it, right? Is that I, I think maybe I also bought into some of the romanticism of pure politics of that, that moment of interruption or disruption, which is attractive, right? Because it mm -hmm. is, there's something to it about people working together outside of their normal spaces as equals, trying to reimagine something different. But yeah, as I found out, I think that was only a starting place for all of these movements. Uh, hello, Plastic Pills listeners. As some of you may know, I've been working on my PhD dissertation on democratic theory. One of my main focuses is radical democratic theory. And in the process of doing that research uh, for the dissertation, I came across an intriguing book called Radical Democracy and Its Limits, Limits by David, is it Matijasevich? Is that right? There you go. Awesome. I got it the first time. I meant to ask you before we started recording, but like, whatever. <laughs> uh, and uh, he's an instructor at, at Simon Fraser University. Uh, David and I have been corresponding on and off for maybe like a couple years, and I figured it was finally time to have him on the podcast, especially given many of our patrons uh, are interested in anarchism and also like radical politics in general. So yeah, David Matijasevich, welcome to the Pill Pod. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Great to be on. Awesome. So um, I want to start by just kind of, I think what makes your book interesting and unique is that you uh, combine theoretical engagement with thinkers like uh, Ernesto Laclau, Chantal Mouffe. Ranciere and a bunch of others with kind of like an empirical analysis of uh, democratic social movements. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, you're primarily trained as a political scientist, as a theorist. Is that right? That's right. So primarily trained as a theorist, but also um, kind of splitting my time with comparative. Um, okay. So kind of in, in both in both realms. And I guess that's um, well, the book, I guess, kind of speaks to that in, in some ways, uh, trying to really showcase the, the best of both worlds, I guess. Yeah, totally. And did you, so what, what got you originally interested in that topic kind of like, was it during your PhD or were you always interested in radical democracy or radical politics? Like what was that story? Like kind of the inception of the book? Yeah, right. So, I mean, I, I've always been very interested in, in protest politics, particularly, um, and social movements, generally speaking. And that's, that's something that I was very interested in not just kind of exploring in uh, an academic way, but but something that just really intrigued me. And um, sometimes I was kind of active in, um, in, in some form at, at the universities I was at as well. Um, so it was also something that, that I lived in a way. Um, and I became quite intrigued with this idea of radical democracy because I think it really spoke to a lot of the global movements um, and global protests that had been taking off um, during the period of Occupy Wall Street and also the Arab Spring, um, and subsequently, I mean, we've had uh, probably a decade or so of an almost unprecedented level of, of protest globally. Um, perhaps some people are saying more now than even in what was considered kind of the heyday in the 1960s and 70s, um, that we've kind of returned to this level. And radical democratic theory 
I, I felt really spoke to some of the normative underpinnings of these movements. Um, but with that said, and one thing that I, I do touch on in, in the book is having taken a look at, at so many examples of these movements being shut down um, or not, not succeeding in, in any type of political or social transformation, this really led me to, to question kind of the validity of the theory as a, a type of model um, that could be used as a type of political prescription and, and hence um, why I, I decided to approach that in my dissertation, which became the book. Just quickly, though, for our viewers who don't know, can you define agonistic democracy a little bit? And one of the reasons I bring up this question is uh, I can't think of anyone who would agree that there is a settled definition uh, on it. You know, Leclerc has one interpretation. Rancière have another. Uh, Chantal Mouffe actually, intriguingly enough, is, uh, identifies as a liberal socialist, so has a very different kind of perception of it. Uh, so what would your vision of agonistic democracy be? Yeah, I think it's a good it's a good question, Matt. Um, it's it's a hard one because I think you're right. The definition is not quite settled. Um, and even in the introduction to the book, it, it was quite a challenge for me to really try to pin down what do all of these thinkers have in common? Because they, they do have a number of things in common, um, which is, I mean, a couple of those things we could say are, are first of all, kind of a, a commitment to, we can say, maybe extra institutional forms of politics um, and a type of politics that uh, imagines people engaging in a way that goes beyond the normal way that they're identified, um, the normal kind of bounds and structures through which they, they usually participate and the normal channels through which they participate. Um, so there's that emphasis which they hold in common. Um, now the agonistic part, uh, this is a question I get all of the time for those that, that don't do uh, democratic theory specifically. Well, what, what in the world is agonism? <laughs> what is this? Um, and we, we can see it as uh, kind of this in-between space between consensus and antagonism. Um, it's a commitment to a type of pluralistic politics where you will have uh, fierce disagreement, fierce engagement of different political views, um, but one that, that doesn't reach the level of political violence or coercion. Um, so in some ways, it's, it's a type of radical pluralism and the understanding that through extra institutional politics um, done in this type of pluralist way, that spaces can be opened up for reimagining the world, for alternatives being pushed forward, for, for policy changes to be enacted, um, and, and sometimes even for larger transformations to occur. Um, yeah, so in setting up the main argument of the book, um, you argue that like certain conditions need to be in place for agonistic democracy to be sustainable. And like maybe this is going to require like a long explanation, but I don't know if there if there's some way you could kind of give us a, a bit of, a, of an idea of like what you see as these kinds of um, and that's and, and just like give the audience an idea. Right. Like you have a number of case studies in the book where you talk about like real examples of like social movements and. And you, you identify like moments in those movements that could qualify as like an open space, a space in between, like a space of agonism, right? And But you also set the book up and the argument um, very well, I think, to talk about how there's these conditions. I think there are four. So if you could talk about some of those, I think that'd be, that'd be great. Yeah, right. So I think, I mean, one thing that I realized um, <clears throat> going through the research and putting the, putting the argument together after doing the case studies is that um, the conditions under which kind of the, con the conditions under which agonism can be maintained are, are quite, quite limited um, because ultimately they, they do depend very much on the benevolence of the ruling authorities or the dominant social force. Um, and this perhaps doesn't come as too much of a surprise when you take a look at certain case studies that are in the book and then also cases around the world. Um, one 
kind of bugbear I guess I had with a lot of radical democratic thought is despite its supposed radicalism, um, the theorists, all of the theorists that are, are identified like, like Ranciere or like McLaren, maybe less so McLaren, but many of their examples are coming out of the liberal democratic world. Um, they're coming out of political systems where you actually have some, um, some standard um, or perhaps we can even say uh, a very kind of well-oiled machine of, of democratic mechanisms where, where spaces exist. Um, you have constitutional rights, you have all of these, and they, they don't discuss all of this very much because that wouldn't appeal to their, their radicalism in a lot of ways. Mm. Um, but when looking at other cases, in cases where you, you don't have clear liberal democratic politics and you, you don't have kind of constitutional guarantees on, on certain spaces, um, Antagonism is often the order of the day, particularly when it comes to social movements. And they, they become repressed quite quickly or they become co-opted quite easily and really limit the power that uh, this type of politics can, can have. One of the, the main conditions that uh, I think was established after I went through this, this book is that it's, it's really, aside from the benevolence of the dominant force, it's, it's really up to the, the protest group or the movement itself to try to win itself space um, in ways that will actually allow it to, uh, to open up the possibilities of greater change. Um, and, and this can be through, um, of course, building alliances, through taking over particular social political spaces that are important to the ruling power. And this is, I think, incredibly important in um, more authoritarian systems and in some of the cases show that. So fundamentally, the, I think, if I, if I can answer it in a short way, one of the main conditions um, is that the, the movement has to have a, a capacity for, for challenging the dominant order um, if it doesn't simply want to rely on its benevolence, which will run out quite fast if those demands are, are indeed radical. Um, and that's, I think that's something that maybe is not discussed as thoroughly as it could be within the theoretical body of work itself in, in terms of alliance building, in terms of the actual strategies of movement building and alliance building and um, and democratic resistance, if you will. I, I have a follow-up question, actually, um, on the subject matter of social cohesion. Uh, so one of the things that's interesting about the kind of radical democratic movement uh, is that it situates itself very far on the opposite end of the spectrum from something like social conservatism, right? Social conservatism tends to advocate for a very thick kind of glue that binds us together, whether it be traditionalism, support for markets, uh, religion, you know, there are various different glues that they kind of put forward, right? And then you move forward to something like the Rawlsian liberal pluralist tradition, uh, which says we can't have less social cohesion than that. We just all need to subject ourselves to an overlapping consensus uh, that we might not necessarily agree with initially, but gradually over time, when we see that institutionally this works, uh, we'll come to respect the institutions of liberal democracy uh, and you know, the kind of rights that flow from that. And then the radical Democrats are at the other end, and I think you put this very, very well, uh, where they say we don't really need any social glue whatsoever. Uh, everyone should be able to exist in their particularity permanently without institutions doing anything to try to efface that. Um, but then we'll dialogue with one another in this kind of agonistic way, uh, and this is the best kind of political form that's possible because it's the most free political form. Can you tell me a little bit about like what the normative argument for that kind of radical pluralism is? Because looking at the work of somebody like Rancher or looking at the work of uh, Leclerc and Mouffe, I'm sympathetic to the democratic feature of their argument, but I'm not entirely sure why it's such a good thing uh, for people 
just be able to express their identity without any real recognition uh, that it might be important to develop a kind of consensus on issues with the other? Yeah, okay. I mean, I think it's it's an excellent question. Um, and, and to be frank, Matt, I think it's um, it's a problem that I also share um, with, with those thinkers and with radical democratic right, thought. Right. Um, going, I guess, to the first part of your, your statement and question um, with regard to this necessity of social glue, um, one thing that come, becomes quite apparent in, in the case study is that uh, often in, in situations where you did have something or, or do have something that very much em embodies radical democracy in, in practice, it's a type of permanent politics. Um, it, society becomes ultimately political. Um, so I'm thinking in my book, I, I talk about the, the case of Thailand in, in the last 10 or 15 years where you've had kind of constant street politics, uh, constant occupations, constant um, attempts at a government overthrow, coup d'etats, all of this, right? And when it comes to that type of thing, it, it does make you wonder, and it's something that I, I refer to in the book, that um, we can make an argument that political engagement in itself can be a positive thing. Um, it, it can be an end in itself. However, it, maybe one way to say it is that it can't be the only end of politics. Um, there does need to be some type of project, and that project requires some degree of, of cohesion, as you put it, at least amongst some members of the society in order for it to, to operate, right? in order for it to work, in order for um, some form of justice to actually become real. Um, otherwise, it, it does just become this kind of permanent type of politics, right? Um, so that, that's my own criticism of it. In terms of where I think they see it coming from, I think they're, all of those thinkers are really coming from a, a type of post-foundationalism where they do not see any particular justification or any permanent justification for a certain type of political order or form of rule, right? So what they would say is that, I mean, maybe to put it kind of crudely, right, to the Rawlsians out there, uh, to the Habermasians out there, they might say that, okay, well, there are lots of folks that have doubts about Rawls and Habermas, right? And how they might structure kind of a liberal institutionalist order. As long as there are people that have doubts um, and legitimate doubts and can make good arguments about why those folks are wrong, we should always leave politics open to plurality um, because there are so many different types of possibilities that we can envision. Um, so that, that's something that I can sympathize with uh, in terms of the dangers of putting forward um, kind of a modest type of politics. Um, however, I, I do think that going on that, that other end, like you said, that other end of the spectrum where no social glue is, is needed does lead to this type of kind of purist, permanent politics that, that isn't transformative and, and might not even lead to a type of justice in the end, right? So. No, I absolutely agree with you. And this is where I wanted uh, a kind of follow-up question, uh, which is, you know, I'm a liberal democratic socialist, right? Uh, I believe that we should be politicizing everything, right? Uh, particularly adopting a critical mentality towards institutions that are held to be sacrosanct, right? But I do appreciate the fact that for many people, uh, being liberated from the necessity of politics is part of the reason why they become radicals in the first place, right? They don't necessarily want to have to sit there and constantly fight for their rights or fight for recognition of their identity. They want to engage in other kinds of creative projects of self-development or whatever it happens to be. And I've never really seen radical democracy as offering anything to these people, precisely because it's supposed to be so permanently political, right? Do you think that would be a legitimate criticism? And could you see examples of that in some of the case studies that you looked at? I mean, that's, that's a really interesting question. I think 
you know what, Matt, I, I have a feeling that you might have um, revealed one of my own political biases, right? <laughs> because I, I think um, even though I, I have my doubts about this idea of permanent politics and permanent political engagement, um, perhaps myself, I, I do have uh, an inclination to, to see political engagement as a, a type of higher order good. Oh, absolutely. I think we all do, right? Or at least maybe those of us that are, you know, are, are talking about this on, on podcasts and, and the folks you, talk, you guys talk to um, kind of week in and week out. So, um, but for, for those folks that want to engage in a different way, like let's say you're talking about like in an artistic way um, or in a way that is not, not about um, confronting power or achieving power, right? Um, I think some of the thinkers do offer something. I mean, I think the work of Jacques Rancière and his, his work on aesthetics, for example, is, is a type of, of politics that, that does offer something in, in terms of uh, a disruptive type of politics, right? Um, or a politics of shattering expectations, um, or, or even Bonnie Honig's work in terms of the development of the new, right? Um, and that politics is about new um, innovative ideas and, and breaking out of, of old models and boxes, right? So I think there's something there um, and, and that is offered. But what's interesting about that, when it comes to politics, one of the problems I, I see with that kind of model being applied, and then I put this, um, I, I state this in, in the book, in the introduction um, and in other parts as well, um, their, their type of politics I feel tends to be a little bit too focused on disruption and not enough on construction. Uh, particularly in terms of constructing kind of a common world um, or a common right. transformative project, right? Uh, so in some ways, you know, while they, they might focus on kind of this pure politics in a lot of ways, in other ways, um, they're, not, they're not so focused on building. Um, and I, hence, I think they leave a lot of people out who are, are less interested in deconstructing kind of the, the world we have right now, right? And who might be more interested in, in, in building something different or new. Um, now those two things go together, but I think the emphasis in their work tends to be on the uh, uh, former rather than the latter, which is a critique I have as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So I was interested and this relates to some of the questions I'm exploring in my own work. You know, I, th I think one of the things that stands out to me about like this space of agonism, I guess, is like, it seems like maybe there's some kind of an account of civic virtue implied that it's like, you know, it's like you need to adopt in this kind of, I think it's like a not so easy attitude to maintain, right? Like this, this agonist, like I know William Connolly talks about agonistic respect and, and I forget what critical responsiveness, right? Like these are, these are two, two attitudes that he thinks are like necessary for having a kind of like democratic pluralist politics. And like, as you were discussing before, you know, this drive to, to have this kind of oppositional politics, but it like all of the thinkers seem to some extent want to somehow hold back the destructive potential of that. And it seems to me that the way that they argue for that is that, oh, people will adopt this attitude, which I think could be called like a kind of civic virtue. And I just wonder if you like if you agree or, or if you could talk about like that in general. It's a really interesting point. Rancière doesn't get into it as much, but there are hints in the work that there, there still needs to be this understanding of mutual respect, right? There, there's this idea of kind of respecting the equal or the other as an equal, right? Um, so it, it does get into this, this realm, and I agree. Um, and what, for me, the problem that I have with that, and then this is also one of the, the reasons that I, I did want to explore the case studies, is because I, um, I found that to be quite hard to swallow. Um, it simply requires kind of the adoption of attitudes of, of virtue or, or tolerance. Um, and one thing that comes out 
in, in the book, uh, at least that I try to make clear, is that it's, it's not so much a matter of disrespect towards another or, or even um, disrespect towards another's political position or existence, right? It's, it's just the idea that your own fundamental political position is fundamental to you and to your group for a reason. Um, and that there are going to be certain things about your position that are uncompromisable. And when it comes down to a particular conflict whereby compromises cannot be made and pluralism cannot exist, then those virtues can be tossed aside pretty quickly. And they are tossed aside pretty quickly. And, and we've seen that. And I think in recent times, in, in the last five years or so, which is kind of uh, after um, I, I finished up writing the dissertation, um, we, we've seen how this has happened, right? We, we've seen how actual... Um, Maybe a return to the political, if you will, you know, uh, some some serious antagonism between different political positions in the West, but also around the world, has led to these virtues being totally cast aside. Um, and and for myself, the way I see it, I don't see that as um, a matter of these virtues not having been promoted, or, or the fact that people like William Connolly haven't had enough of a voice. I think it has something to do with the nature of the contest itself um, and the nature of the struggle between these contesting ideas themselves. Yeah, I think that's that's good. And I think we're probably on pretty similar pages there. I think, uh, you know, it does raise just the question of stability, right? Like how, I, because I think like these attitudes, like it just seems really hard to rely on them as you were saying, right? Like people can set them aside so quickly, right? And, and, and of course, like, because they have these kind of anti-foundationalist sympathies, that almost prevents them from being able to talk about what those things mean in like a thick manner. Because like, if you start talking too much about the required attitudes, all of a sudden you're becoming a foundationalist, right? Because if you're talking about like what the right attitudes, they just kind of have to vaguely, like you, like you're right to say, Ranciere, you know, a, a, a appeals a little bit to equality, but then, you know, Connolly does a little bit more, but um, yeah, that always strikes me as a kind of a paradox in, in, in anti-foundationalist political theory. And that it's like in avoiding it, they miss, they like they 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 don't let themselves talk about something that seems important, but then they kind of talk about it just unsatisfactorily. Yeah, you're you're very right, and I think that might be um, it might be very much the fact that they by talking about it more they would fall into the trap of undermining a lot of their own work. Um, but exactly. it goes back to Matt's point about this idea of the glue. Um, so in in some ways they're putting forward this idea of um, these virtues of agonistic respect, responsive critical responsiveness, um, an appeal to respecting the other as an equal, uh, as, as a type of this glue, but it's when it comes down to actual political contests, when it, it becomes a matter of, to put it crudely, who wins, um, who, who actually achieves political power, who gets the policy written, um, who is in and who is out. When we live in, in societies whereby a lot of times those types of decisions have to be made and we, we can't have full pluralism, then how, how does that, um, how does that conundrum get resolved? And I think that's not something that's addressed in their work very well. One of the odd things about the radical democratic movement is that there is a kind of normative implication uh, that's latent within their arguments, right? Which is that our absolute respect for difference uh, is what we should do, right? Respect for the other uh, in their otherness. Uh, and I never really think that's particularly well argued for by these kind of radical Democrats, even if I sympathize with the position, right? Uh, but one of the things that I think is problematic uh, with this argument for absolute respect for difference is it doesn't really account 
for what I see to be the primary virtue of democracy, actually, which is this idea, as you put it very artfully, of constructing a world together, right? Uh, and I think that this is where a genuine democratic politics differs from either a liberal politics or so-called radical Democrats, because the kind of liberal politics will say that this is the kind of standard set of liberal rights that you get. Uh, you don't have to engage in politics at all uh, or engage in any kind of socially free activity. Uh, just live your private life. That's fine. Uh, whereas these radical Democrats say we need to have absolute respect for the other in their particularity uh, and even understanding that we might never be able to come to terms with one another. Uh, I think, you know, this idea of constructing a shared world together as a democratic activity that Arendt puts forward, amongst others, I should say, like, is a lot more inspiring and a lot more true to the spirit of democracy going back to ancient Athens. And I was wondering if you think that that's true. Yeah, um, I, I think I, you and I are on um, a very similar type of, um, if not exactly the same page, um, we're on, you know, the, we're in the same chapter, Matt, <laughs> not too far off on that. Um, I think that's, I think that's right. Um, even though, like I said earlier, I, I do think this idea of breaking down barriers, of taking people out of boxes, um, kind of a more deconstructive politics is, is important, right? Because it, that's, that's necessary to, um, to, to question the world as it is now, right? And, and to reimagine it as something that could be different or better. Um, but it, it's only the first step, right? Um, and in a lot of ways, the radical Democrats in in kind of their their appeal to the kind the the recognition of difference as, as kind of the ultimate end, um, and then depending on which thinker you're looking at, I think they take that um, they take that in different ways. And then Connolly definitely takes that the furthest, and, and some of the others like like Move takes it less less far um, as as a result of her own political commitments. I think, but um, I agree that in the body of work. They, they do not uh, focus on, on the act of building or constructing um, or even, even the idea of, of dialogue, right? I mean, right. Um, there's, there's a lot of, um, not, not, that I'm, um, not that I'm the biggest fan of deliberative democracy. <laughs> I'm sure that's something you talked about with other folks on your show. Uh, but I think there is something to this idea of people coming together and, and actually hashing out a plan for, for living together in a just way. Um, and unfortunately with the radical Democrats, I think once that is done, it's kind of seen as creating otherness, or it's creating exclusions. Um, it's the process of constructing is, is automatically um, othering, right? And that's kind of the first thing they turn to. If I go back to Honig, I think there's, there's one part of her work, I think it might be in emergency politics, um, where she says something to the effect of, you know, the second after the constitution is written, the people become, um, they're no longer the authors of it. They, they kind of become subjected to it. And hence it should be open to rewriting. Um, and it's, it's this kind of spirit, which um, as much as I think that's, that's necessary to always keep politics open, to, to keep possibilities open, taking that too far leads to the, uh, leads to a situation whereby people can never really engage in meaningful construction together. Um, and it's interesting because Honig is kind of a neo-Arentian and she goes very much a rent, very much against a rent in that way, right? Where um, she moves away from that, that kind of a, um, Arentian understanding of um, building, building a world together um, through, through dialogue, right? Um, or through great acts and deeds, as, as she might put it. 
No, I absolutely agree with you. But one of the things that I always try to contest is this idea that um, you can't find cooperative forms of radicalism. Uh, and a book that I really like is J.A. Cohen's Why Not Socialism, right? Where the metaphor he uses for a society of equals with where people treat each other with respect uh, and engage in democratic processes uh, is actually a camping trip, right? Uh, and he says, look, you know, if you have to cooperate together and reach a consensus on what kind of jobs you're going to be doing on a camping trip, uh, yes, that does involve a certain kind of infringement of your freedom since you might want to cook rather than canoe or whatever it happens to be. But most of us will understand that if this is done in a non-authoritarian way, uh, it's not only necessary for sociality, but it's actually good for sociality, right? Uh, it leads us to have a feeling of mutual warmth and affection for one another. It helps us build a better trip, you know, uh, over time. And that's the kind of metaphor that I think is radical, but also very inspiring in a way that the radical Democrats sometimes aren't, uh, just to me at least. Anyway, Victor, I know you had a question. So. You know, I, I also, I, I'm cognizant too that like, you know, it's interesting. A lot of our listeners and especially patrons, you know, they have, I think I mentioned at the beginning, they have like some anarchist sympathies and like, they're probably going to give us shit later on because like, you know, Matt, they always call Matt and I, they're like, oh, there's those libs. Cause like the other two guys on the podcast are like a bit more post-structuralist and Matt and I are like, you know, liberal socialists and sympathetic to that stuff. So like, I, you know, so I do want to say like, at least that I do find, you know, uh, r radical politics to be like important and necessary. And, you know, I'm sympathetic also, but I think, you know, what's that, what's that issue is how sustainable or is it as like a, you know, a serious plan forward. Um, I don't know. I just felt, <laughs> felt the need to like, to, to give that little caveat, but I did want to talk a little bit more about like the the empirical um, kind of investigation that you have in the book, and you know, I, and one of the things that I think sometimes disappoints me about like a lot of ra like people who self describe as radical leftists, especially like online, you know, uh, is like I feel like they don't really understand like power dynamics, especially related to institutions and 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 other kinds of like political factors. And I'm curious if you could talk about like in some of your empirical case studies, uh, maybe like one of the ones that you found most revealing on on how they shed light on how the necessary dynamics for agonistic democracy um, to occur and how they interact with like power dynamics and what sort of like destabilizes that that agonistic space as it relates to kind of like the, the more like political conditions that I think, you know, political scientists tend to investigate those things much more than theorists do. And I think it's, that can be a mistake if, if, if a theorist is really interested in radical politics. So, and that's what I think your book, frankly, brings to the table. So maybe you could talk about that a little bit. To, to perhaps um, start from a really maybe crude starting place, um, in some of the cases that I explored, uh, politics is really nasty business. Um, it's, it's, it's something that it's it's not a picnic um, and it's not, um, and, and sorry to use your own analogy against you here, Matt, I'm not doing it on purpose, but it's, it's not a camping trip. Um, it's, yeah. it's a fight, it's a struggle. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a matter <clears throat> of um, facing the possibility of a serious defeat that, that could mean um, the loss of one's livelihood or life uh, in some circumstances. And I think, you know, the most revealing thing, and, this is something I go back to in terms of, you know, trying not to just look at cases in liberal democracies, right? I think a lot of discussion about radical movements, um, particularly that inform radical theory, often come out of the West. Um, they often come out of cases like, like Occupy um, or, you know, May 68, which I covered in the book. And then I did that as kind of a, a case study to, to really just shed light on it because it's often heralded 
as this really anti-institutional movement, right? Um, and I, I wanted to do that to, to just shed light on the fact that, well, you know, the fact is that the, some of the most radical currents within, let's say, May 68, um, were probably the least successful in terms of pushing a type of transformation. Um, it, it was, in fact, those that, that tried to engage um, with political power at the level of the unions, at the level of the parties, at the level of the everyday person on the street and trying to win them over that, that resulted in the potential for, at first, possibly revolutionary change, which didn't happen, but, but later some concessions and reform. Um, and kind of the so-called student ghetto right, around the Sorbonne in May 68, which is always romanticized, um, in, in fact, really only operated as long as it did because it had the support of this larger movement around it. Um, if it had not done so, or if there had not been this support around it through you know, workers and others that had joined in this mass movement, um, it would have either stayed very small and have just been tolerated and would not have been remembered, um, or it would have been crushed quite quickly. Uh, because the, the type of demands and, and type of interruptions they were posing to uh, you know, ordinary life, so to speak, were, were quite stark. Um, and it, it would have, again, led to, um, it, well, it did lead to violent repression anyway, but perhaps even more so. Um, so that, that was kind of one, one case that really revealed that to me, right? That because you know, so much of radical democratic thought is often based on some of these more romantic moments of pure politics. Um, but behind the scenes, what's actually sustain, sustained them, um, what's actually allowed them to develop that type of romance is everything else that was going on. And that happened to be the engagement with power. Um, and that, that type of uh, capital P politics that was taking place, right? I guess it's the second thing, you know, taking a look at the Southeast Asian cases. So just to talk a little bit more about my own, my own background, my own work, um, I'm really interested in the politics of Southeast Asia. Um, when I do my comparative work, um, I, I, I tend to focus on cases from Thailand or, or Malaysia or Singapore. It's a place where I've spent some time. Um, and the thing that's always very revealing about that region is that, again, um, these, the regimes um, in, in these countries um, are, are not liberal democracies, and they, they do not allow for these particular spaces. So. Um, radical politics really means radical politics. It really means risking everything <laughs> to take part in it. Um, and, and you see that um, when these movements engage. So when it, when it comes to uh, the, the foundations for agonism, or what allowed for agonism, the one thing that's really revealing uh, in those cases is that in, in situations where um, you have an authoritarian state and that authoritarian state has quite a bit of legitimacy, uh, ultimately, um, a type of disruptive politics that remains at that level um, is, is not able to transform anything. Um, and not only that, it can't even allow for the type of um, more kind of individualist or uh, apolitical type of um, transformation that could be possible. So I'm thinking about kind of a... I hate to use this word, but like lifestyle anarchism, right? I mean, like something like lifestyle anarchism, where you kind of separate yourself from the authorities, separate yourself from the state. You don't engage in politics. You kind of just live your own life and do what you want. In a place like Thailand or a place like Singapore, 
that's not even possible because you don't have liberal democracy. Um, and sometimes, you know, in, in the West, uh, we kind of take those liberal democratic foundations for granted um, and think that we, we can kind of live that way and be that way and not engage um, and just subtract ourselves or separate ourselves from those struggles and, and just do it ourselves. But what those cases really reveal is that it's not possible. Actually engaging um, in transformation so that people can uh, engage in a more democratic way or even in a more liberal individualist way, um, as, as maybe Matt was alluding to before, um, requires the transformation of society. It, requir it requires actual real political engagement, um, again, at that capital P level. So this kind of goes back to my earlier point about why I think the, the need for um, larger movements that engage with, with more people um, in movement building, alliance building, um, is, is necessary to even uh, allow for the type of um, liberal type of existence <laughs> that maybe we take for granted in uh, some Western countries. Yeah, you, you, you touched on so many things that I, that I, uh, that I agree with. Um, you know, I think the point that you make is so important. And actually, I think I was talking to like one of our listeners the other day about like uh, anarchist communes, you know, and, and there, and I was like, I think touching on, I think the point you make is so important that like the, the reliance on background conditions, right. Of like liberal democracy for certain kinds of political association to be possible is something that's often missed. And, you know, I think the romanticism just does get it does kind of like, you know, interfere with uh, with, I guess, ability to see to see like those conditions. So, yeah, it's it's really so interesting. But um, Matt, I think you had something yep. uh, next if you want. Go ahead. Absolutely. I just want to say that I completely agree uh, with what you said. And just speaking from my own experience, uh, my wife is Mexican. I lived in Mexico for two or three years uh, and it really compelled me to reevaluate some of the critical opinions I had about things like the rule of law or trust in um, government institutions. Right. Uh, because. It was a very different cultural environment there where in many parts of the country, there really was very, very minimal rule of law uh, and no one had tr any trust in institutions uh, and things often didn't work very well. And people complained about it consistently and how they wanted to shift things in a more developed direction. Right. Uh, but it's hard to do because, of course, if you don't trust institutions and then institutions try to enact change. Right. Um, the people tend to be resistant of that, or at the very least, they tend to be skeptical that it's going to lead to any kind of meaningful benefit to them. Uh, so one of the kind of jobs that someone like Amlo, for instance, uh, assumed was trying to convince the people that when he said he was going to change uh, the Mexican state and reduce corruption, he really was going to do that. Right. And of course, it's still an ongoing project. Um, but the, the question that I had for you is, I think you very rightly point out that a lot of proponents of radical democracy do indeed kind of fixate too much on Western social conditions uh, and kind of rely on background assumptions about the stability of the state, the stability of law, um, respect for basic rights, while arguing for their kinds of positions. But why did you choose to focus on Southeast Asia in particular, uh, countries like Malaysia, Singapore, and Thailand? And what kind of lessons do you think people living in Western countries can learn from these case studies? Yeah, those, <clears throat> those are two really good questions. Um, I hope if, if I end up kind of going on a tangent, just just nod your head or something. Um, <laughs> Our show is all about tangents, believe me. So go ahead. Yeah, no, it's all good. It's all good. Feel free, honestly. Indulge, totally. Um, I mean, there are a couple, I guess a couple of responses. Um, one of the reasons why I focused on Southeast Asia, and maybe it's very much like you were just suggesting, Matt, with your own experience with, with Mexico, um, it's a place where I've spent time. Um, and it really changed 
a lot of my assumptions about how politics operates um, and what is politically possible and how how reimagining society might need to take a, a different type of route um, in order to get there. Because I think a lot of my own, I, I mean, I, I was, um, I grew up in Canada. Um, I was very much trained, not just in kind of Western political theory, but, but also Western political science and very much accustomed to uh, certain norms and conditions that exist here, right? Um, and spending time in Southeast Asia, uh, particularly Thailand and Singapore, where I've spent the most time, just just was a kind of a real world lesson about um, what's really possible under not just authoritarian conditions, um, not just when you have an authoritarian regime, but also when you have a, an authoritarian political culture in a lot of ways, or where the acceptance of non-liberal ways of going about things is a lot more predominant than it is in the West. Um, so not only are you kind of fighting against the state and traditional elites and all of that, you're also struggling against a large segment of society, even for things like basic rights, right? And, and so folks that are Democrats um, or folks that are socialists, for example, right? They've got quite the struggle <laughs> because they're, they're really fighting it on multiple fronts. Um, and I think my own experience in, in Thailand, um, I, I was traveling in Thailand in 2008, um, and that was, that was actually a period I ended up covering in the book. Um, there was an occupation of the major airports in the country, and I, got, I was stuck. I was stuck in Thailand for a little while because of that. Um, and I just, at that, at that point, um, I had not really been in Thailand to do research or conduct really any study on it politically. Um, I was there for some other reasons. Um, traveling around and um, also doing a bit of teacher training. But that, that moment um, where you know, I, I saw those kind of mass occupations um, and what it eventually led to as I kept following it, which was an eventual coup d'etat um, some years on, uh, just really, really made me think about um, what the limitations are to the type of politics that I, I had even been a proponent of back home. Um, and, and certain strategies that I had been a proponent of back home. So it made me reevaluate it, maybe very much like, you know, you reevaluated some of your own ideas, Matt, in Mexico. Um, so that, it was partially personal experience and, and partially some of those lessons that got brought up. The other thing, to indulge a little bit, the other thing too is uh, I think um, I, maybe your listeners are, are going to think you've done this on purpose, but I think I also consider myself a type of uh, liberal democratic socialist. I think I, I believe the institutions of liberal democracy are, are really quite important. Yes, um, indeed. So, and I think that that comes from my experiences in those places because uh, bringing about a type of economic transformation where you have a, a higher degree of economic justice actually requires fundamental civil and political rights being institutionalized to even get there. Um, because otherwise, what you see, and I think this is something that comes out in the book, is you, you end up having these, uh, these movements, sometimes which are very strong and powerful, end up either getting crushed or co-opted without any real fundamental transformation of the, the society um, and with sometimes fairly marginal concessions um, coming from the, the ruling elite or the, the traditional classes or, or whatever. Um, so. When you take a look at those cases, and I think this is very much the case now, um, there, there are these large scale protest movements that have kind of like really taken off uh, across Southeast Asia and also East Asia in the last several years. 
Um, Thailand is one, Myanmar, Hong Kong, Taiwan, right? And what's interesting about all of these, even though they're complex and, and dynamic movements, and you know, um, we, we can't say that they all necessarily stand for one thing, but th there are a number of folks in those protests that would identify themselves as, as leftists or socialists in, in wanting a, a fairer society, particularly in terms of income redistribution. But they know that in order to get there, they, they have to take away the entrenched power of certain elites that are above the law. Um, they need to have the rule of the law. They need to have uh, respect for constitutionalism. They need to have their basic political rights respected first. Um, because otherwise, again, not just as an end in itself, but as something that uh, will gradually lead to the, the possibility of, of change. Um, a, a more social democratic or socialistic change over time uh, because they've seen too often that the alternative route, which is just trying to oppose um, these fairly entrenched authoritarian regimes, just kind of results in uh, cycles of repression um, and, and disappointment. Um, and in, in the Thai case, that's been, it's been like that for the last 40 or 50 years. So hence this, I think that, that, that type of struggle for, for some of the, the background conditions, to put it in other ways, that we're, we kind of take, for, we take advantage of or we take for granted in the West are, are actually necessary to fight for. And I think that's what people are fighting for right now in some of those locales. So, No, I absolutely agree with you. And I think this raises an interesting, um, both theoretical and practical question when you talk about issues of economic justice and its compatibility with the arguments of some radical Democrats. Because one of the difficulties that I've always had is that if you put forward an argument for a kind of economic justice, then it's hard to see how you can do that without relying on some kind of foundationalist vision, right? That this is the right kind of economic distribution we should have, or people, even more basically, people should be entitled to healthcare, housing, whatever it happens to be, right? Uh, and practically speaking, I think that these kinds of constructive arguments for economic justice resonate with people quite a bit more than some of the abstract arguments uh, made about agonism. And one example that I'll often point to is something like Lula's party, uh, the Workers' Party in Brazil, right? Uh, able to reduce poverty from 12% to down to 7% uh, through various different public policies. Uh, but you wouldn't be able to have that unless he was willing to stand up and say, this is what we should do, and this is what we're going to do, right? Because it's the right thing to do, right? Uh, and can you think of any other examples, uh, whether in Southeast Asia or elsewhere, where these kinds of constructive platforms organized around an idea of economic justice has actually mobilized a kind of democratic uprising against powerful elites that want to resist those kind of changes. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think there are, there are there's a, a long, there's a long history of I think social movements in, in that region that have, have tried to do just that. Um, and they, they've tried to put forward uh, a collective platform of, um, transforming this society in a way that would take away the power of entrenched elites. Um, and entrenched elites in this case don't just mean political, but also economic. Um, because we're, we're talking about a region where inequality is quite, quite stark. Um, and crony capitalism is a huge problem. Um, and maybe the only capitalism that exists in the region is, is crony capitalism. So as a result... Everyone's favorite capitalism. Um, <laughs> So as a result, you know, there, there have been lots of popular mobilizations in, in places like the Philippines, um, which has a long history of, of popular mobilization in, in, a, in a democratic way around those issues. Um, in, in Indonesia, um, in, in Thailand, in some respect, 
Now, in, the issue in Southeast Asia, the, the one, one thing that makes it quite different than some Latin American cases is um, the, the way in which those countries went through their kind of post-independence process and development process was very much state-driven. It was very much elite-driven. Um, it did not allow for much, much space for organic civil society to develop. So civil society has been historically weak. Um, unions have been historically weak in that region, which has naturally taken a power, taken away power from, um, you know, a, a classic classical left, if you will, right? Um, and you also have very intense Cold War politics, where you know th this was a region that, of course, the United States was very heavily engaged with. Um, you know, the United States, uh, of course, with its engagement in Vietnam. Um, tried to ally itself with, with countries like Thailand, with, with Singapore, with others, um, because of the, the fear of the communist threat. Um, and, and this, of course, also led to the disempowerment of, of the left in a lot of ways. And why you, you don't have such a strong social democratic tradition um, in those regions. Um, and even, even the radical tradition, even though it's there, um, the radical leftist tradition, I think, is, is weaker than a place like Latin America, right, where it has obviously a very very strong and, and powerful history and then plays, plays a large role. Um, but, but nevertheless, it's there. And of course, um, platforms for economic justice have often been on the agenda. Uh, I think in that region, it's often taken the form of populist politics. There's been a large number of populist politicians that even though not committed to the transformation of the society, have put social justice or economic justice on the agenda. So in the Thai case, um, Someone like Thaksin Shinawat, even though he was like a multi-billionaire media mogul who was uh, highly authoritarian and corrupt, um, he was one of the first mainstream Thai politicians to put that on the agenda. And he won election after election, and his proxies won election after election. Um, but again, what's interesting, to go back to the Thai case and, and to go back to my argument before, right? I think this is one of the reasons why a lot of people in that country are, um, they're, they're not just fighting for, um, for something like socialism. They understand that without without the rule of law, without political rights, um, they will never be able to get there. That the parties that they vote for are just going to be overthrown in coup d'etats. Um, that the mobilizations that they, they put forward on the street in mass numbers when things go wrong are going to be harshly repressed by the military and hundreds die on the street. Um, so you know, without, without that type of uh, a transformation to, to something that is more democratic in nature or more liberal in nature, if you will, that, that other type of transformation is really hard to envision. So I think those two things really come together. So it's, it's an interesting region to explore kind of the intersection of the, the demand for liberal democracy and the demand for economic justice, um, which sometimes in the West, those two things don't often go together because you know liberal democracy is often criticized as just kind of a, a facade of the ruling classes, right? It's, it's just the, the smokescreen behind oppression. Whereas I think in, in a place like that, that's not how it's seen. Um, it's seen as a, a tool at least or an instrument um, of uh, a greater transformation later on, right? If, if not something that's beneficial in its own right. Oh, absolutely. I just wanted to add a, a quick kind of follow-up. Uh, a lot of my friends at Jacobin um, said they personally reevaluated things like the importance of liberal democracy and the rule of law after January 6th, uh, where a lot of people were being like, just pray to God that, you know, uh, the wall holds against this bulk work, right? So... I think that we can all um, agree that there are certain things about liberal democracy that are certainly worth preserving. Uh, peaceful transition of power from an authoritarian kleptocrat to 
a modest kind of vanilla politician, you know, being one of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. I, yeah, that's that's um, a good way of putting it. I was uh, one thing I would say about the, the January sixth thing is that, I mean, I, I received a lot of messages on those days, like everyone did, right, from my family, friends, and whatever. Um, and I, I couldn't help but smirking a little bit because, again, having you know lived and worked and studied Southeast Asia, right. this is like a, this is a monthly occurrence, right? This is politics all the time. Um, so the, the reminder of you know the importance of, of certain liberal democratic features um, is, is is pretty is much more obvious, right? When you take a look at that, when you're kind of fixated on on the West all the time, um, it can be easy to forget or easy to take advantage of or take for granted. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, there really is this temptation like among Western academics. And this is actually going to lead into my next question, which kind of brings us a bit more back to the theoretical level. And maybe like it covers some of the ground we, we talked about earlier. But I guess, you know, one thing that kind of interests me about radical democracy and maybe other forms of radical politics, and it also speaks to... Um, you know what like what a lot of the other stuff we do on this podcast too is we you know we look at critical theory and, and post-structuralist philosophy too um and i think what you know i think that like a lot of the times there's a temptation in radical politics to t that is it, or there's a deep influence it seems to me from post-structuralist theory and i guess like i had like my main critique of combining post-structuralist theory with with politics is like it it seems like the role that like something like the aporia you know and the undecidability of the social the fact that everything is contingent constructed like i mean not everything but like you know this is like the emphasis in post structural and it seems to me that that's sort of like what Laclau and Mouffe pick up on you know in their book uh, you know they pick up on these sort of like post structuralist um insights and you know the, the i guess the fact that the failure of traditional marxism which they like you know was premised on some kind of like a thick ontology of like the working class that they were like well that's that doesn't make any any sense anymore and i guess you know it seems to me that these post structuralist insights are often used by people with radical uh political sensibilities to almost overinvest it, I think, with like the possibility of radical change. It's like because things are contingent, now anything's possible, right? Or like it makes it seem like it gives the impression, you know, that that, that like there's this open space where anything anything can be done. So therefore, like we should push against these structures because we can transform it almost into anything we want. But I guess, you know, I, it seems to me that um, that might be missing that like this space of openness is equally can function as like a barrier to change in a way. And I guess I wonder whether you agree or, or like um, have some thoughts about that connection between post-structuralism as like, you know, this openness and contingency um, and, and how it relates to politics. Yeah. Um, I mean, I th it's, it's a really great, it's a really great question. Um, and I think you're right. A lot of the, there are a lot of radical thinkers that, that draw on post-structuralism for sure. And in, in radical democratic theory, that's certainly true. Um, and maybe to, to link it back to my earlier, earlier point or, or something else that I said, I, I think post-structuralism um, is, is useful in helping to uh, recognize um, kind of unimagined possibilities or uh, as Honig might put it, remainders or exclusions that um, other types of political theory are, are blind to. Um, and it, it does help kind of bring those to light. Right. So if we go back to Leclau and Mouffe, and maybe one could argue that this could be done in a different way, but in, in hegemony and socialist strategy, you know, one of their main critiques, just like you said, was that um, by, by moving away from um, this emphasis on you know, the working class as, as kind of the, the harbinger of the, of the ultimate truth, right, of, of the future to come, 
um, post-structuralist thought and, and looking at you know the various ways that power operates in society and looking at the various inequalities or inequities or um, exclusions is able to actually widen the horizon of what needs to be transformed. And I think I think that's a fair point. Um, the the problem that I have, and I, maybe this is this goes back to the um, what we were talking about earlier. It's that point of um, because of its post-foundationalism, um, because of its deconstructive nature, um, it becomes very difficult to put forward any type of collective project. Um, some would say even by default, it becomes impossible. Um, you can really only deconstruct and critique. Um, and it, it becomes quite, quite difficult to, in, and again, in real practice, to build something. I mean, theoretically, right? I think it's quite, quite easy for, for many post-structuralist thinkers to say something like, well, we can have an assemblage of, we can have a constellation, right? These words are really common um, yeah. in the literature, right? But what does that look well, like in practice? One, uh, an ever more radical kind of democracy, right? <laughs> that's, that's, that's an interesting one, it's a good one. Um, so, you know, this, this type of language is used, but then when it comes to actual movement building, right? When it comes to people working together on the ground and, and building alliances and having to put forward a, a collective program um, not even necessarily for policy or for change, e even for just organizing an opposition movement. Um, that, that type of deconstruction, um, I think, does lead to paralysis in a lot of ways. And I'm not just saying that theoretically. I think it has led to paralysis. I think it's one of the reasons why, um, particularly in the Western world, I think, and this isn't an original insight or anything. I think a lot of people have said this. Um, the reason why we're seeing this type of politics where you have quite a lot of anti-institutional or extra-institutional protest politics is because this is the type of politics that can be done in, in, in silos, right? You can have this, the multitude, so to speak, of you know, different agents that really are not connected. They're all just kind of against the same thing in some way. But to actually bring them together um, and have them coalesce into something that could put forward a collective project based on that type of theory I think is quite limiting. So I, I share your um, I share your critique in that sense, Victor. So I think I think it's useful, but again, it, it's only it's only half of what politics is about. It's politics is not just about again, you know, deconstructing old old arrangements, right? It, it's also about reconstructing or reimagining and building. Yeah, actually, I, this will be my last question because uh, I have to go pick up my key, uh, but. I think also one of the reasons why post-structuralists aren't necessarily attracted to putting forward concrete solutions is in part because a lot of the mundanity of everyday politics is pretty bland from a theoretical perspective. Uh, and it's not interesting in the way that kind of attracts the theorist's imagination. Like an example that I typically give is um, improving uh, women's access to education. So uh, in the province of Kerala in central India, um, there was a lot of concern about how it is that parents could be encouraged to send their girls to school, right? Uh, and originally the idea was, well, offer them a monetary stipend to send their girls to school rather than sending them to the factory. Uh, and it didn't work because the system is so corrupt that people just took the money uh, and they sent their girls to factories. So what the state decided to do instead is offer a meal to these girls at the school, uh, about 600 calories, uh, but you had to send them there in order to get it, right? And parents consequently sent more of their kids to school. Uh, this is a pretty practical thing, right? Uh, but it's not particularly theoretically interesting, but it had a massive influence uh, 
on women's education in the state and the hundreds of thousands of girls enrolled who wouldn't have been enrolled otherwise, right? Uh, and these are the kinds of imaginative and kind of constructive projects that I think the left needs to mobilize around uh, because it's you can point to it as a kind of concrete way that institutions responded to inequality uh, and did something that tangibly made people's lives better, right? Very, very marginalized peoples. So I'm wondering if you had, you know, a magic wand, right? Uh, and you could just wave it over uh, radicals today. What kind of concrete proposals would you want them to adopt? That's a, that's a really good question. No one's ever given me the magic wand. Well, so that's it. You now have the power to enact meaningful change and say, this way we march uh, and no other. I think, I think what I would say in, in terms of the, the key proposals, and, and this is something that has obviously been, been spoken quite a lot about, and I, I think it, it doesn't um, it doesn't require a lot of, of reading today. You just have to you know look at the uh, social media or the news um, over the course of a week to figure this out. We we have a highly divided, fragmented societies. Um, <laughs> I think even um, the the degree of fragmentation uh, has increased, or at least has been amplified in, in volume in, in terms of what I'm hearing and seeing uh, since I wrote the dissertation. Um, and I, I think it, it might sound kind of uh, quite straightforward, Matt, but it's it's really about again finding common ground um, between people that that might have different issues, might have different concerns, but rallying around those common demands. So in the case of Corella, right, that that might be something like um, education for girls, right? Um, it might be something substantive, like pushing for um, for meals at school, right? Um, or it could be something like you know, fairer tuition fees, or a living wage, or uh, certain reforms of institutions that will allow for more, uh, more input from ordinary people, right? Um, things that we, we hear from, I think, a variety of different opponents to how things are working right now. Um, but I think because of the fragmentation that we see, we, we don't see a real, a real push for, for commonality. Um, because I think it's quite, and maybe part of this is because of the influence of post-structuralist thought, and there are other reasons too. There's, there's a tendency to focus on differences, right? Um, and there's a tendency to focus on what, uh, what people don't share, um, as opposed to what people do share. And I mean, I, I can see how even what I'm saying right now can, can, can be criticized and can be considered problematic, because it's, it's suggesting a type of homogeneity, um, potentially, uh, not recognizing the, the forms of uh, oppression that exist or hide behind commonality, et cetera, right? I, that would be a pretty uncharitable interpretation of what you're saying, but yeah. <laughs> I could see it, but I could yeah. see it coming. Yeah. Um, if somebody really wanted to take issue with what you're saying, I absolutely agree. <laughs> <laughs> so I, it's, I think it's just, it's finding the common denominators again, right? And, and this is actually where I think, you know, some of radical democratic thought is, is still quite useful. Um, like going back to the Clow and Move, um, one aspect I really like about the work, even though I'm not, uh, I'm not very sold on that agonistic part and the, the possibility of the agonistic part, is um, the idea of uh, equivalential chains, right? And it's, it's more of the Clow's idea, but the chain of equivalence, right? And, and what is the chain of equivalence? Well, it's, it's when, people do when people do have common demands, they do have some degree of commonality that can be stitched together regardless of that difference, right? Um, so, and I think in real world politics today, uh, maybe particularly in the Western world, we've just got a lot less emphasis on 
those commonalities between you know the various groups that that all have issues with with different aspects of the system right so that i think that's what i would do with the wand great uh that's that's great you know i I think that's probably a, a good place to to stop. You know, uh, I feel like I've I've, an, I've asked all my questions, and you know, I gotta say it was uh, it was such a pleasure, and it's nice. You know, I discovered your book too in this context where I think I kind of had these like feelings of dissatisfaction, and then it was just like very very surreal to find a book that just like captured what I was feeling, but then like gave me the the sort of like at least a direction to go in because I you know I had those feelings. So you know, I thank you for writing the book, and yeah, it worked out really well for well, me. I'm happy. I'm happy that it was uh, it was helpful. Um, it was it was a lot of fun writing it. Doing the case studies was a, a lot of fun, and and it was really revealing for me too. Um, it was really one of those projects where I uh, <laughs> I think like you know good research should be the the hypotheses and the ideas that I had at the beginning were not the same as when I finished, and I became a lot more. Um, a lot more suspicious of of radical democratic thought, um, even though I'm still sympath sympathetic to to quite a bit of it. Mm -hmm. um, there, there's quite a lot more of it that I, I actually see as maybe even holding holding us back um, from, you know, a, a more just world, a more just societies, or or even real political engagement, right? Which is something that they're big on. Um, yeah. And this goes back to the comments that Matt made about, you know, political engagement being a matter of con construction and building um, and, and focusing on, on that. So I'm curious, what, what were your like initial hypotheses? Did you did you have like a much more initial optimistic uh, belief about what the sort of outcomes you'd find? It was it was more it was more optimistic. Um, I, I think I was planning or maybe even hoping in some ways to find that these, um, these kind of spur of the moment movements, right? That, that took off um, and really disrupted the status quo in, in ways that had you know, not previously been imagined, um, that they were going to be actually more important than they ended up being, right? And I think, like I said, one thing that I realized is that it, it wasn't that romantic moment of stepping out, as I put it in the book, right? It wasn't the moment of taking to the streets that actually made the difference in terms of how the, that particular political situation transpired or unfolded. It was, it was the kind of larger context, um, those bigger struggles that that, you know, initial spark was really only a part of. So I think that that's kind of um, what maybe the biggest lesson I learned from it, right? Is that I, I think maybe I also bought into some of the romanticism, right? Of pure politics of that, that moment of interruption or disruption, which is attractive, right? Because it mm -hmm. is, there's something to it about people uh, working together um, outside of their normal spaces as equals, um, you know, trying to reimagine something different. Um, but yeah, as I found out, I think that was only a starting place for all of these movements. Yeah, for sure. Well, the book is uh, Radical Democracy and Its Limits. Uh, David Matajasevich, thanks so much for coming on. And uh, yeah, we'll put a link to the book uh, in the description. Of course, these academic books tend to be pretty expensive, but I can say that I picked mine up. I think it was like a Christmas sale and it was like 60% off. <laughs> so sometimes just watch out for those sales because Palgrave does have some really, really great stuff. And I actually found your book, funnily enough, because I was just browsing the sale. So like, I don't even like, so I didn't even find it from Google Scholar. I was just, I was like, oh my God, I'm researching radical democracy. Here's a book called Radical Democracy and Its Limits. And I 
read the description, read the review, and I was like, okay, well, perfect. I'm going to pick it up. <laughs> so yeah, listeners, maybe that'll come around again. So the sales, this, it's always good to keep an eye on those sales because you're right. Um, it is it is an expensive one um, as academic books are. And I also got a lot of flack for that. People thought it was my fault. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah Matt's in the same boat. Matt, Matt's got some books with Palgrave too, and he runs into the same thing. Yeah, so. yeah. yeah One guy I sat there and he was just like, why the fuck is your book $150 and you're arguing for like liberal socialism or whatever? And I'm like, Hey man, believe me, if I were in your shoes, I wouldn't buy it either. So just- yeah, that's, that's, that's what I, that's what I suggest too. So, um, I'm always happy when people read the book, but I, I don't necessarily want to, uh, suggest that you go and buy it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, great note to end on. <laughs> but thanks so much both. I mean, it was great. Thanks a lot. <laughs>